In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning, this first Sunday in Lent, we find ourselves in Luke's Gospel, where we are drawn out into the wilderness with Jesus, where we get a sampling of 40 days' worth of temptation by the, de- by the devil. And we have to ask, how does God allow this to happen? Within the realm of his power and sovereignty, God allows the devil to have a short leash in harassing his son for a time. And we'll look at why God does this. But first, let us look at the what of what actually happened. And when we do, we'll see that there is nothing new under the sun. Satan begins uh, by throwing up a cloud of doubt, attempting to challenge Jesus' understanding of his identity as the Son of God. He says, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Do you hear with me here the echo of the very first sin ever committed in the Garden of Eden? Yes, there is eating involved as well, but there too, Satan sought to cast doubt upon the commands and purposes of God. To Eve, he said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That old deceiver's tricks haven't changed, have they? The temptation here lies not just at the point of Jesus' truly human physical nature, how hungry must he have been after 40 days of fasting, but the temptation lies also at the deeply internal level of his identity and commitment to obeying the plan for salvation. So too for us, temptation appears to be just an outside thing related to one action or another. When we hear those Ten Commandments, we might think about them like a checklist. And yet behind them, underneath the waters of the tip of the iceberg, there is a whole depth to what's going on inside of us when we're feeling tempted. Well, Jesus will not be fooled by the devil. He doesn't bite the bait. Unlike Eve and unlike us, Jesus does not question God's goodness or his purposes. Full of perfect faith, Jesus refuses to entertain doubt. He moves right along, parrying the devil's jab with a verse of scripture from the book of Deuteronomy that confirms his commitment to obeying the word and the will of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here, Jesus, the eternal word of God now made flesh, quotes the word of God written. For his second try, the devil now attempts to use his own limited temporal power to tempt Jesus into breaking the first commandment. That commandment we read just now, thou shalt have none other gods before me, but me, excuse me. He offers Jesus all of the rule and the authority of all the kingdoms of the world throughout time and space. And the irony of this second temptation is that Jesus really and truly is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. As St. Paul says in Philippians, one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The temptation here would be for Jesus to seize what is his by right, to skip over and avoid the suffering of the cross. 
to shun the pain of his betrayal, arrest, denial, rejection, flogging, crucifixion, death, and separation from the Father's love. The temptation is to get to the end of the story now. And we too are tempted at times to kickstart the timeline of God's purposes in our lives, to avoid any kind of suffering, if at all possible. And we give in to the temptation to adopt an ethic where the means are justified by the ends. But Jesus does not. He zeroes in on the means that the devil proposes, and he exposes them for what they are, heinous disobedience to God. Jesus quotes scripture that reinforces this first commandment. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. In round three, now the devil decides to fight fire with fire. He has the gall to quote scripture to Jesus. As he is wont to do, the devil twists the meaning of that beautiful Psalm 91, which tells of God's assurance of protection to those he loves. The devil twists this to try to trick Jesus into proving his identity, which shows us we are all too quick to read into scripture what we might want to see there. But once again, Jesus is not fooled. He has no desire to fly like Superman just to prove what he already knows about himself. He does not doubt his identity as God's son. And unlike us, Jesus does not test God's great goodness and loving kindness. Instead, he deflects this attack of the devil once again with a quote from scripture. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here, now, after these three examples, we see that Jesus has accomplished what the Apostle James describes. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Well, so now that we've looked at the what of this passage, we can look at the why. We hear at the beginning that it is, in fact, the Spirit of God that leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted Why would God allow this to happen to his beloved son? Some people would say that this passage is meant primarily to show us how to resist temptation like Jesus. But there is so much more to this passage than just Jesus' own example. If we were to make this passage into a how-to manual on how to resist temptation for us, then we're going to miss out on receiving God's good news to us broken sinners for the inevitable times when we do break down and give in to temptation. And so looking again at this passage, we see that there are two things that this passage shows us about Jesus that are crucial for our salvation. First, he is holy. With Jesus, the mold of sinful human nature has been broken. Though fully human, he is without sin. We see him here in Luke 4 doing what we cannot do. Jesus resists temptation fully, perfectly, again and again. Jesus does what Israel could not do, even as he does what we cannot do. It's no mistake that these temptations occur within the context of 40 days in the wilderness. That number 40 and the location of the wilderness are meant to remind us of how God sent 
dragged his people, Israel, into the desert to wander for 40 years. There they were tempted to disobey God by disbelieving in his ability to provide for their physical needs. And in response, he graciously brought them manna and quail. There, too, in the wilderness, Israel disobeyed the first commandment by bowing down to worship the golden calf that Aaron had made. There as well, Israel tested God's goodness, questioning his love for them, questioning his power and ability by saying, oh, we're going to die in the wilderness of thirst. They demanded water, fearing that God could not provide for them. They tested God in the wilderness. Jesus is tested and tempted by the same temptations and God allows this to happen in order to show us who he is that he is the true Adam the new Adam the true Israel the new Israel the only human being who has ever been what God had intended for us to be this perfection on display clues us in to Jesus's full divinity And in seeing the gap between Jesus' perfect holiness and our unholiness, what do we do but fall to our knees and cry out again to him for mercy? Because we know we need help from outside of ourselves. We know as creatures in this creation, in this seemingly closed world of creation, we need something totally perpendicular, totally from outside of us. We need God himself to enter in. And in the moment of our own temptation, don't we need help from outside ourselves? When doubts swirl around in our heads, When we find ourselves on the slippery slope because the white lie we once told now requires more lies to cover it up. When we are sinking down into fear like it's quicksand, then and there we call out. Then and there we need to know and remember there is only one hope for us, and that is Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. I get phrases from movies stuck in my head, and one phrase has been sticking in my head for 15 years or 20 years from when I first saw, and I probably haven't seen it since then, first saw the only really good Star Wars, the great Star Wars movie, the first Star Wars movie. And there's a phrase from it, and maybe it's because I'd like to identify with different characters and think of myself as Princess Leia or something like that. There are there are phrases that stick out, and one phrase that sticks out, and maybe it's rung in your ears for the last 15 or 20 years too, is Princess Leia calling out in her desperation for her only hope. And we hear R2-D2 repeating it again and again too, right? Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. It sounds like a telegraph bouncing out an SOS. Help me, Jesus Christ, you're my only hope. Help me, Jesus Christ, you're my only hope. Jesus is our only hope as the only one true holy one. That is the first thing. The second thing that Jesus' temptation shows us is his identification with us 
in our own unholiness. Not only is he far off and holy and perfect, but he is near. He humbles himself. He enters in. He enters into human nature. The word made flesh. Those 40 years that Israel spent wandering in the judgment in, in the desert were actually judgment. That was 40 years of judgment from God for their failure to believe that he would miraculously allow them to conquer the promised land. It was like the prolonged timeout that a parent might give to a disobedient child. And Jesus symbolically takes on this timeout on the heels of his having been baptized in the Jordan River. Because there, remember, at his baptism, John the Baptist balked at Jesus wanting to be baptized. John said, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus is the only human being who doesn't need to repent and receive baptism. And yet there at the Jordan, he entered into the place of the sinner. And in the desert, again, Jesus enters into the place of sinful Israel. He identifies with sinners, though he is without sin. And here at the outset of his earthly ministry, Jesus displays a sign for us in advance of what will come at the end through his death. Here Jesus is seen to be vicariously living as a sinner, even though he is totally and fully not guilty of sin. Jesus puts himself in our place. Here in this passage, Jesus puts himself in our place there at the cross to take on the penalty for sin. We like to say theologically that his death is vicarious because by it, he swaps destinies with us. He who knew no sin takes on the sin of the world, our sin, and the judgment for that sin, which is death. He was condemned so that we might be forgiven. He died so that we might have life. He has been tempted in every way as we are, and yet was without sin. So that when we are weak to temptation and fall into sin, we might know the depths of the forgiveness of God. So when, for us then, when we are tempted, every day, every hour, every moment, sometimes it feels like that, Luke 4 shows us that rather than just resisting evil with words or with human willpower, our only choice, our only option is to fall to our knees, remembering God's past mercy to us through Jesus' vicarious death for us. This swap this great exchange is our basis for mercy and grace now in the moment of our need. And we say again those words which we'll sing in just a moment of the great hymn, How Firm a Foundation. We can say these words with great hope as though the Father is saying them directly to us. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume, thy gold to refine. So, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.